Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a local perspective on a new medical diagnosis called prolonged grief disorder. An alarming rise in syphilis cases has state officials urging Minnesotans to make good choices and everything Minnesotans need to know about the state's state of agriculture. But first... Minnesota veterans who served during the global war on terrorism can now apply for bonus payments to recognize their service. Tasha Radel has more. Our service members and their families make incredible sacrifices to preserve the safety and freedom of our state, nation, and world. Governor Tim Walz says this bonus recognizes the service and sacrifices of our heroes who answered the call to protect all of us. Joining me today is Dave Belfi with the Minnesota Department of Veterans Affairs. Dave, let's talk a little bit about the program in general. How did this kind of come about? Sure, absolutely. So MDVA, or Minnesota Department of Veterans Affairs, has a long history of awarding service bonuses for uh, individuals who have served in conflicts and wars throughout the years. We, in fact, go back to 1919 when our first service bonus was uh, issued to individuals who served in World War One. We continued through World War II, uh, the Korean War, Vietnam War, uh, the Persian Gulf, uh, so the um, uh, 1990 era, and now we are uh, providing service bonuses for those who served uh, from 9-11-2001 through August 30th, 2021, or what we'll consider the global war on terrorism period. Now, I understand uh, this also includes Gold Star families, correct? That is uh, correct. So Gold Star families could receive up to $2,000. Um, so those, uh, for those not familiar, Gold Star families um, are uh, those families whose service member was killed in action. But it's also including individuals, uh, so veterans who served during the period, again, 9-11-01 through August 30, 2021, and then died as a result of their service-connected disability during that same period. So beneficiaries are eligible to receive um, a $2,000 bonus um, uh, for for that particular tier. Oops, I apologize. I jumped the gun a little bit. So there are actually three qualifying tiers, and you covered one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to reiterate, so it's on all three tiers. Uh, the veteran must have served, again, between uh, September 11, 2001 to August 30, 2021. And the $600 tier would be for those who served during that period and did not receive one of the four qualifying medals. Um, so they could have, uh, you know, served and maybe they were stationed, uh, you know, uh, in the Navy and were stationed in Japan for four years or in Germany or Italy or something. Um, so they would be eligible or may be eligible for $600. The $1,200 would again be uh, service during that time period and they have been awarded one of the four qualifying medals. And 
so that would mean that those individuals uh, would have most likely served um, in the Iraq or in Afghanistan um, or maybe some of the uh, supporting areas where they could have received the Global War on Terrorism Expeditionary Medal. Um, so that's the $1,200 bonus. And then one other caveat to the um, kind of qualifications, if you will, uh, individuals in in those tiers, the veterans must have joined in Minnesota, and then they also uh, must be current Minnesota residents and have an honorable discharge. Dave, let's talk a little bit about the application process. What is a good first step for Minnesota veterans? Uh, So a a great first start is to kind of understand the three tiers and understand um, the other requirements we talked about with Minnesota residency and honorable discharge. And then, um, and if, if there are questions on any of those things or individuals have questions on their DD-214, which is the discharge paper that they receive uh, upon separation, we are recommending that they reach out to their local county veteran service officer and, and, and the CVSOs can assist with that process as well. If individuals feel confident, um, I would say that you should ensure that you have your supporting documents ready. And again, those supporting documents would be your military eligibility, uh, typically a DD-214. That that will show where they joined the military, that they have honorable service, that they served during the time frame, and if they have medals. So that one document serves as a as a major component of uh, of the approval process. And then we need a Minnesota current Minnesota residency, which uh, for a, a common um, identification would be a driver's license, but we have other uh, documentation that we'll accept as well. And then we do need a W-9 form that's signed. And this, I want to stress that this bonus is not taxed either at the federal or state level, but we need a W-9 form in order to make a payment through the state um, accounting system. Uh, So again, uh, just want to to mention that again, even though you're filling out what appears to be a tax form, you are not going to be taxed on the bonus at the federal or state level. Um, and then where I would go is um, you can go out to minnesotaveteran.org slash service bonus, and that will bring you to our FAQ site where you can uh, go through and maybe you have some additional questions on some uh, things that we're not covering in, in, in this session and uh, look at the FAQ site or click on the portal to apply. You'll, it's, uh, it's an online application, an online portal. Individuals will create an account and then they'll go through the application, upload their supporting documentation, submit it, and then our staff uh, will process it on our end and then send it through to MMB for uh, payment via check. Thanks again to my guest, Dave Belfi, with the Minnesota Department of Veterans Affairs. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. 
Throughout the state, Minnesota Electric Co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Ranger Station. Yeah, hi. I'd like to report a bear sighting in the forest. Uh-huh. One second, I'm having a smoke. Next thing I know, I'm face-to-face with Smokey Bear. Wow. And he told me it only takes one spark to start a wildfire. Did you know nine out of ten wildfires are caused by humans? I had no idea. That's why Smokey's famous and you're not. If you see someone in danger of starting a wildfire, step in and make a difference. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Many of us have had to deal with grief. It's an unavoidable part of life made worse by the pandemic and by recent violence. But at what point does grieving go too far? A new diagnosis called prolonged grief disorder has been added to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM-5, which is used by health professionals to diagnose and treat a wide variety of mental disorders, prolonged grief being one of them. MNN's Bill Werner talked with University of Minnesota lecturer in behavioral health, Dr. Faiz Karim, about it. I think all of us are, throughout our lives, going to experience grief in various ways, shape, way, shapes, or forms. Um, in the interest of full disclosure, I, I've lost my parents not all that long ago, so I'm mm-hmm. in that category of people as well who have, have experienced that and continue to experience it. And I assume that for any significant relationship, whether it be a loss through death or a loss through estrangement or, or, or any one of a number of other things that might cause people to be separated from each other um, permanently, uh, that, that a, some amount of grief is, is appropriate, it's necessary, it, it is, is a healthy process. Would that be correct? But also there's a point where it is unhealthy, correct? Correct, yes. So the grieving process and one that's going through bereavement is a very uh, natural process. And I think you have a lot of individuals that go through um, grieving that need to kind of um, heal naturally from that loss, um, regardless of what that loss is. And I think the biggest component when we look at any sort of grief and loss, as you mentioned a couple of examples, is uh, the relationship we have with that loss. Whether it's a individual, you know, that's lost due to death and dying, or let's say a job. So, you know, for mm-hmm. example, looking at a loss due to a layoff, unemployment. Uh, but there is definitely, you know, th- that need um, for individuals to um, kind of heal naturally from that loss. And I think the reason why it's important for individuals to have that um, bereavement process in order to heal naturally is because um, it helps to instill and develop a sense of resiliency and, and coping mechanisms to, sure. to deal with other stressors and adversity or other losses later on in life, though, too. question that I think a lot of people will have, and, and I'll be honest, I, I've had it myself in my own life, various losses. At what point does it become unhealthy? In other words, what kind of indicators can a person maybe look for either in themselves or in someone whom they are close to that say, well, maybe this, is, this isn't really going the way that, that it should? That's kind of the bigger debate, too. At what point do we consider um, grief 
more of a quote unquote abnormal or uh, you know out of the ordinary or more of a disorder. And if and I, I if I may, doctor, uh, too, okay. I, I would assume that the grieving process that there's no standard schedule for any one person. It depends on the individual, on their yeah. background, on the depth of the relationship, either with the individual or or with a with a job, and, and all yeah. sorts of uh, uh, and support. I would assume from from friends and others mm-hmm. uh, through the grieving process. I, I, am I correct that that there's there's no necessary yeah. timetable? But yeah, is, is that? Oh, go ahead. No, what I'm wondering is, um, are there some general guidelines? Ought a person to be be moving on within six months or a year or two years or or five years or or is that not even really determinable? I think it's a great question because I think it depends on the nature of the relationship mm-hmm. that we have with that loss. It depends on the severity of the symptoms. Um, we want to look at, you know, one's protective and risk factors, the amount of social support they have in place, um, coping strategies, healthy and unhealthy. But you're right. You know, a very big misconception in society at large is that, um, you know, there's this timetable um, around a grief and there is no timeline. There is no time frame. Now, granted, this new disorder, you know, uh, does have you know a very specific um, timeline, a time frame um, where the the loss um, it's you know uh, more than a year that someone has to have these symptoms. The symptoms yeah. might be what then? Uh, in other words, that symptoms should abate after a year or so. I assume, but what are those symptoms? So some of the major symptoms that you'll see with this new um, disorder and the criteria is um, identity disruption is a very big one. So as mm. you mentioned before, just the, the impact on one's identity. And I think that is something that's very uh, natural. And so keep in mind that an individual to have this new diagnosis, they have to have um, a variety of these different symptoms. They have to have multiple symptoms. Okay. Um, so the identity is a very big piece of it. Um, avoidance of reminders. So a lot of times with different losses, we have various triggers. Um, and it could be, you know, avoidance of people, places, things that remind them of that loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the biggest thing I think that we see with this disorder, um, you know, regardless of the time frame and how long these symptoms are going on and the severity, is the level of impairment. Mm. Um, and so if you have individuals that, you know, because again, you know, you'll have individuals where they're, it's a very natural process to have these symptoms, whether it's the identity-related losses, the, the feelings of isolation. That's a very, very big one, feeling disconnected, feeling alone or detached from others. Sure. But, you know, at some point, you know, for some individuals, um, they may have a difficult time um, getting back into their normal day-to-day routine where it's impacting work. It's impacting school. Um, it's impacting social relationships and at, at, at a larger scale. So, you know, in the short term, you may have individuals where it's impacting things like work productivity, schoolwork. But, you know, this disorder was meant to be for individuals where those symptoms are more chronic in nature and they're long lasting. That is University of Minnesota lecturer in behavioral health, Dr. Fiaz Karim. For those carrying a heavy burden of grief, there are indeed ways to move forward and to begin to live again. And next week, Scott, we will talk with Dr. Karim about that. Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this.
welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Recent data from the state health department shows an alarming increase in cases of syphilis throughout the state. I recently spoke with Minnesota Health Department's Christine Jones about this troubling trend, what may be causing it, and what we can do to prevent it from continuing to go in the wrong direction. Yeah, so we are seeing um, an increase in syphilis cases, and actually what's going on in our state does mirror what is um, happening nationally, um, and that is some stark rises in syphilis cases um, across the board affecting all communities. And what we're seeing is um, especially of concern are pregnant people or those who could become pregnant. We um, do currently have a syphilis outbreak in the Duluth area, and we do have an area of concern that we've seen some sustained increases in in Cass and Beltrami counties. And so we're working closely um, with community members and other providers in those areas to um, do some prevention, education, and intervention in, um, in those areas. Uh, Christine, do we have any sense of what the cause is or why we're seeing this increase, particularly uh, in the particular group that you mentioned, the folks that are pregnant or could be? You know, um, one of the things, you know, we don't, we can never say clearly what the actual cause is, but one of the things, um, we may be seeing some increases um, as a result of existing health inequities, some structural racism. Um, continued patterns of, you know, black, indigenous, people of color, and other marginalized communities um, that are most impacted by STDs, um, especially in the in the outbreak areas. Um, other things that could be happening are, you know, there's more testing. If you do more testing, you do find more cases, um, but there could just be more cases across the board. Um, COVID, you know, was a was a weird, uh, a weird year. The pandemic did lead to some disruptions in testing um, and in cases that were reported in 2020, which is what this data is. And so we're going to just need some more time and data to really accurately see how that may have impacted it as well. In terms of prevention, what do folks need to know to try to uh, reverse the trend? What we really want to do is we want to see individuals going in and working with their providers and being tested um, for STDs and HIV on a regular basis, especially individuals who are pregnant. They should be tested um, and screened um, three times during pregnancy, working with their um, obstetrician on that. We want to have people continuing to use um, preventative and safer sex methods like you know, condoms, um, and the other piece is just knowing the signs and symptoms of pro- providers knowing the signs and symptoms so that they know to screen and test their patients that come in that are at risk as well. And folks that feel as though they may already have uh, symptoms, I mean, a lot of us do kind of Google doctoring to find out what's going on. Uh, <laughs> what are some of the first steps they should take if they suspect something is wrong? First step they should take is reach out to their health care provider. If they do not have a regular health care provider, um, we would encourage them to go to one of the um, public STD clinics, Clinic 555 in the St. Paul area or the Red Door Clinic in um, the Hennepin County downtown area, Minneapolis area, and be screened. Um, and then at those locations, they can screen and um, test right there. And also, we work with folks to help them um, notify any partners. Um, who may be at risk, and get them in and um, tested and treated if needed as well. Okay, good information, Christine. Thank you. Anything else of significant significance, rather, that you would uh, care to add this afternoon? 
You know, I think just that, you know, like I said, we are seeing increases that do mirror the rest of the um, the nation. And I, you know, we really encourage folks to be proactive about their health um, and reach out and work with their healthcare provider and um, be tested routinely. Thank you to my guest, the State Health Department's Christine Jones. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It's a busy time of year for Minnesota farmers as they monitor crop conditions, moisture levels, and much more. The same is true for those in charge of creating the state's agriculture policy. Minnesota Ag Commissioner Tom Peterson spoke recently with MNN correspondent Mark Dornkamp, giving an update on a lot of things, including the Farm Bill, drought conditions, avian flu, and an upcoming trade mission to the Philippines. Tom, Governor Walls was uh, visiting a farm in central Minnesota this week talking about the agriculture bill and and i know in talking to you before there's plenty to highlight this year you know it it really is mark and it was great to be on the czech farm uh, east of st cloud yesterday in benton county uh, 600 cow dairy and really uh, looking at that uh, big piece of that bill was really our drought relief package um, you know over 10 million dollars which is available to farmers uh, through the drought relief program we also uh, really important in that area with all the poultry, uh, $3 million for ag emergency uh, preparedness, also uh, meat processing. Uh, you know, we're uh, more grants for those uh, meat lockers, but also kind of a new program, uh, $350,000 to help start uh, some of that meat processing in high schools in the FFA program. So very excited about that. But then also dollars for uh, soil health uh, grants. Uh, mental health, our beginning farmer tax credit, uh, emerging farmers. So just a real, you know, quite, kind of wide variety of, uh, uh, of things for farmers, a $28 million investment in agriculture in the next couple of years. We spoke, uh, when we talked before, uh, you mentioned that some late summer rains really helped the corn and soybean growers, but for livestock producers with their, their hay and forage, especially crop producers, you know, the drought was just so devastating. And you you look at the timing of when those concerns really started to emerge a year ago, and it was comparable to, to where we're at now. Um, what's the current moisture situation statewide, Tom? Well, in general, our moisture situation is uh, we're in a pretty good uh, spot here in Minnesota. We do have uh, uh, some of our state has entered uh, the first D0 
uh, drought, which is just a, a, a slight drought. And that'd be kind of from the Twin Cities down to Iowa. And then a little touch of uh, D1 drought uh, in uh, the very uh, uh, lower part of some of the counties in southern Minnesota. But the rest of the state's soil moisture is uh, really good shape. Uh, and the crop has really taken off. As you know, Mark, we were probably a month behind in most parts of the state. You know, the old adage is the corn going to be knee high by the 4th of July. Well, this year that would actually be the case as we've seen, you know, shoulder high uh, for many years. Uh, but the crop, uh, the farmers really worked to get that crop in the ground. We got to almost 100% on corn, soybeans and wheat. Uh, and, uh, you know, the crop's uh, moving along pretty good with these hot days. Yeah, the heat certainly helps. And uh, not related to that, but related to the, the heat component. You know, we haven't talked about avian flu in a while. And I know that that warm temperatures will will kill off the virus. As you think back at the spring and the cases that were reported and how everything was handled with the outbreak in Minnesota, um, how would you kind of sum up the the response really, Tom? Well, you know, I just really, it's interesting where we're at. You know, we ended up with uh, 80 cases in Minnesota, about 60 commercial and 20 backyard flocks. Uh, Minnesota had the most cases in the nation, but not the most birds. Uh, Ours was uh, pretty limited to turkeys, uh, and uh, so our numbers of birds weren't quite as high, but still almost 3 million birds. Uh, you know, but the one thing I'd say is we looked at most of the spread came from wild birds, uh, which is different than when we had uh, avian influenza in the past, where we didn't have that farm-to-farm spread, which means that all the work that farmers do to um, control biosecurity on their farms really worked. And that's going to be really important as we go into the fall, Mark, because we are still finding, although we haven't had a positive case in a month, we are still finding uh, the the H, H uh, high, high, high path in wild birds. They're still finding a couple a week. So we know the virus is still circulating around. And again, that's different than 2015 when we had this in the past. So we're going to watch that very closely and uh, really keep those plans in place as we go into the fall. Any other topics that you want to make sure we touch on today? Uh, I think that uh, one other thing that we're working on really hard uh, right now is uh, uh, things start to open up uh, across the nation as uh, trade. We've been hosting uh, trade delegations from uh, uh, Taiwan, uh, uh, Canada, um, uh, the Czech Republic a lot. And then uh, I'll be leading a trade delegation to the Philippines. And Philippines has been a good market for uh, corn. Uh, pork uh, with uh, different tariffs being changed there. Certainly don't have to go into great detail, but what does the itinerary look like for that trade trip to the Philippines? You know, a lot of it for for me is uh, is uh, policy and discussing policy as such as the tariffs. Also selling Minnesota as we're competing in a world market uh, on that Minnesota produces a high quality crop um, that we have a good availability um, kind of telling the story of how our farmers produce that crop. And so, and then having some of our farmers with that can help uh, connect uh, those growers. They also want to come here. And so it's a lot of relationship building, a lot of uh, personal connections on the different trading companies and everything. And so, but then also uh, policy. We'll be going with uh, a couple other states, Nebraska and South Dakota too as well. As uh, in the Midwest, a lot of times we end up working together. That's Minnesota Ag Commissioner Tom Peterson with MNN correspondent Mark Dorenkamp. That is going to do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.